1: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
2: Hello and welcome back to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the Specialist Digital Editor at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And for those wondering where I've been for the past month, let me say what started out as a short holiday break was extended thanks to a positive COVID test and the extreme difficulty of getting back into Hong Kong. And thus, I speak to you from a temporary studio south of the South China Sea in a city known in Cantonese as Sam Sam. But to business, it's a very significant week to return to your podcast feed. Let me run down a couple of items of interest to us in the world of China geopolitics. Today marks four years since the day Donald Trump announced 25% tariffs on roughly $34 billion US dollars worth of Chinese imports, closely followed by China retaliating with its 25% tariff on goods originating from the US worth $34 billion US dollars. Now, four years ago, we made an entire podcast series detailing the stories of what happens when children's bikes, handbags, washing machines, game controllers are suddenly targeted by tariffs. But perhaps it can be best summed up with this quote from a manager of a factory in Shanghai, supplying frames and wheels to one of America's oldest bicycle retailers.
1: Nobody wins in this war,
2: and um, they're hurting different people. Now, in this episode, you're going to hear from a veteran trade lawyer in Hong Kong who's been at the front line of US-China trade these past years. This is what he said back in 2020, the day before the US election, on what was then known as It's the U.S.-China trade war podcast.
0: Biden will certainly change policy. He's much more of a results-oriented and a multilateralist, and he'll use more traditional avenues of policymaking in Washington. But the politics haven't changed that much. Um, There are still the drivers of U.S.-China tensions are going to continue, and the uh, apprehensions of the American people about China are going to continue, and the apprehensions of China about the United States are Mm -hmm. going to continue.
2: So what does he think now, two years into the Biden administration, and in a week where there's been signals that the Biden administration might lower some, not all, tariffs on Chinese-made goods in an effort to stem the inflation that's affecting the US economy. You'll be hearing from Ben Kastreba later in this podcast. But today, of course, headlines are dominated by the impending G20 meeting in Bali. Not only will we see US Secretary of State Antony Blinken in face-to-face talks with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi There's also the prospect of a meeting between Australia's new Foreign Minister Penny Wong and Wang Yi after six weeks of intensive competition and island hopping, competing for the hearts and minds of governments across the Pacific. And all this on a morning where the news is of an extraordinary joint press conference between the heads of the American FBI and the British MI5, in which they warned this. The most game-changing challenge we face comes from the Chinese Communist Party. It's covertly applying pressure across the globe. This might feel abstract, but it's real and it's pressing. We need to talk about it. We need to act. And let's not forget the fact that by the time I manage to edit this podcast and publish it, there's a very good chance the United Kingdom will have a new prime minister. Hold on to your hat. Let's get amongst it. Mark Magnier is one of our North American correspondents based in our New York Bureau. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much, Doug. Mark, I'm speaking to you early on Thursday morning on this side of the world on the eve of the G20 meeting in Bali and on the eve of what's being reported as a significant announcement on tariffs by the Biden administration. Let's start with tariffs. What are you hearing from your sources on that?
3: Well, this has been one of the most excruciating things to watch, I think, because uh, Biden has just been uh, really between a rock and a hard place on this. We're getting closer and closer to the November election. Um, I think the uh, the Republicans are you know going to be very quick to push him on being soft on China uh, if he gives too much. Um, at the same time, he needs to do something uh, to look like he's acting on inflation. I think many economists uh, are questioning whether this would actually, Um, reduce inflation anytime soon. Um, So what we're hearing is this kind of what looks like a a kind of a trying to make everybody unhappy. Nobody will come out a winner. (laughs) And so what it looks like, this is and this could change, obviously, you know, this is Washington and uh, uh, every little um, uh, slimy uh, lobbyist is in there, but uh, essentially that they would give a very small amount in, uh, in tariff reduction, something like $10 billion, which may be more than your uh, paycheck or mine, but in the context of the 370 billion or so that is, uh, that is tied up under Trump's trade war, it's a, it's a fraction of 1%. So they would throw some of that, they'd give a little bit of uh, reduction in tariffs on that, Um, for some consumer goods, and then they'd set up a new process that, of course, is kind of twisty and archaic. But what it does, from what I can tell, is it puts the burden of proof on anyone who opposes lifting a tariff gets their way until a public hearing happens. So the burden of proof will be on keeping the tariffs. And there are two deadlines on that, because basically the way the 301 Uh, Section 301 law is written, Trump put in these tariffs, they have a four year shelf life and he put them in in various tranches. You know, he like, uh, it was a very classic Trump move where I'll show you, you're not responding. I'll show you even more. Oh, you're not even responding. You know, his his kind of bullying tactics. And so each one of those has a deadline. The first one was Tuesday actually, yesterday, um, yesterday here. And so the people requesting that the tariffs continue have poured in. I just checked the website. 327 different uh, companies and entities have asked that the tariffs be um, continued for that that particular deadline. There's a second one in August, a month later, because four years ago Trump said, "Okay, a month later, I'll I'll show you." And so that already has 85 uh, people opposing. So that's kind of the technical side of it. The political side is that Biden could come in and lift some of the sanctions. Um and uh some of the money is on that he would coincide this with the call with Xi Jinping which he said last month was going to happen. So of course everybody is denying that there's any connection between any kind of call with Xi Jinping and uh, lifting the tariffs even in, in a little bit, but, uh, you know, politics are politics. Okay, so that's some of the context uh, from what what the scuttlebutt is in Washington on, on
2: tariffs. It's fascinating you mentioned about, you know, that idea of, you know, Biden being wedged between, the, you know, inflationary pressures and the need to try and uh, lower those versus being called soft on China, so to speak, leading up to these midterms election where he's opinion polls are somewhere down in the basement. Of course, we've got a story on seap.com right now about the idea that the Biden administration might try to wedge China between ongoing tariffs and its new IPEF trade agreement and seeking to sell to the Indo-Pacific. It really does seem that China and the US, they have this common doom of this, you know, slow growth, imminent global recession. And, you know, their futures are tied to each other, but it's also very, very tricky politically for Biden to sell this idea of of lowering tariffs
3: I think that's right um and and I think that's why you've seen them rumor and float and leak for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, and it it's just there's there's kind of no win for him politically. Um, at the same time, I think um, the longer he waits. Uh, The closer you get to uh, November, and by many indications, the harder line that the Republicans are getting because they don't want him to have anything vaguely resembling a win that he can, not that this would be much of a win, um, that he would go into. And then, of course, on on the tariff issue, you've got the labor unions basically saying absolutely not, nothing should change. We need all trade with with China uh, the way it is and business has been a little more uh nuanced because they can't i think politically they cannot come out and say we support china either in this context so they've tried to make the argument uh as biden has um that this is a way to address the uh, 8.6% inflation that we're we're seeing and also kind of uh, a nod to the fuzzies to say this will help families and people with, with children who, who need um, products that come in from China.
2: So let's turn to what's going to happen over the next 48 hours in Bali. We've seen that Anthony Blinken is set to have a meeting with Wang Yi. These meetings are always closely watched to see whether they're friendly or fiery. What do we know of this meeting between Anthony Blinken and Wang Yi? What is the agenda? What are you hearing from your sources?
3: start with the big context first. I think when the Biden administration has come in with the partners and allies approach, very different from uh, Trump's nativist America first uh, issue, where he would get many of his own uh, allies angry. There is a real contest, I think, between the U.S. and China for the developing world, for the developing countries. And so I think uh, uh, G20 uh, in many ways, uh, plays more to China's hand than, say, the G7, uh, which has been pretty unanimous in um, slamming Moscow and um, p- pushing China by, uh, sort of, as as a part of that. So, uh, so I think this that will be interesting on this count. Both both uh, of them will be, I think, playing to uh, the. Uh, lesser developed countries uh, of the G20 relative to the G7. So that's one thing. I think the thing that the the U.S. is looking at uh, for this meeting, one of these is to try to prevent Beijing from moving any closer to Moscow on, on the Ukraine situation. The Americans have been, uh, you know, have made statements to the effect that China has not invol- been involved in any uh, serious violations of the sanctions. And so they wanna make sure that that is the case and that there isn't any slippage. There is some concern over uh, the oil that, that China is buying a bit more oil from Moscow, but it has not been anywhere near what India was doing. So so that's I think that's one of the issues. The other issue that I think we've seen uh, uh, in several recent meetings, including the one between Jake Sullivan and Yang Jiechi in Luxembourg, and um, a little more tensely between Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and uh, Defense Minister Wei Feng Hu, is just a desire to make sure this doesn't go off the rails. The language, the tensions around Taiwan, um, the um, piercing of strategic ambiguity—this uh, concept that uh, where the U.S. does not say for sure whether it will come to Taiwan's defense—and uh, the Republicans in particular are are pushing the the fold on that, and that has made Beijing very concerned. And then, you know, all of the on the ground closer run-ins between uh, navies and. Uh, Air Forces, what have you. There is concern on both sides that this not get out of control. And so I think that is a second uh, point to just make sure both sides are on the same page. And then I think probably the third one for the US is to try to thread the needle a bit over um, how do we um, make sure that we keep pressure on Moscow, uh, keep the sanctions in place but at the same time, given that Russia is a huge energy supplier that we uh, address the gas pump uh, inflation, which is an enormous political liability for Biden. He just just <laughs> Americans love their cars, and, and that big number right next to the gas station. They drive past that ten times a day, so, so there's a hue and cry to do something about it. So that, that, those, I think, are some of the major things we're going to see.
2: That's fascinating, Mark. And of course, as world headlines scream the idea of global recession coming towards us, Joe Biden really has difficult decisions to make in terms of tariffs, in terms of policy. And of course, this shared future that the US has with China, given the depths of their economic relationship. It's great to talk to you again. We will, of course, look for your reports and analysis on SEMP.com. Thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Jared. Wendy Wu is the Political Economy Desk Editor at the South China Morning Post. She's based in Beijing, and it is my great pleasure to welcome her back to the podcast. Hello, Wendy.
1: Hi, Gerard. Thanks very much for the invitation.
2: It's a great pleasure to have you here. Can I start by asking you about this extraordinary joint press conference held overnight, our time, by the heads of the FBI and MI5, claiming China is the preeminent Threat to Western society uh, through, you know, cyber crimes, etc. What kind of response has this received in Beijing? Uh,
1: so far, uh, the state media will, uh, and the officials have not uh, responded of, uh, to this to this issue. But based on the previous uh, experience, especially when Donald Trump launched. It's a, a Section 301 investigation. The espionage and the cyber attack is one was one of the accusations that Biden acclaimed to China that, which has seriously eroded the interest of the US economy. So it is not quite a surprise for Beijing, in my view, but it's just that it's uh, re- really really rare that the heads of the security services in the U.S. and the U.K. have launched such a on China. And it will be a question which will be, um, is largely expected to be raised by the reporters in the uh, regular Ministry of Foreign Affairs press this afternoon. But I think that the official line will remain largely the same with the previous one that China denies it has conducted any state-backed espionage activities. And it will also be interpreted as another containment tactics by the US and its Western allies to, to pressure China in the overall tensions.
2: And as I said in the introduction to this podcast, It just seems quite extraordinary to have that press conference the day before the G20 meeting begins in Bali. So, of course, we'll see what happens uh, this afternoon at the uh, Foreign Ministry Press Conference in Beijing, and we'll see how that plays out with Wang Yi uh, in in Bali. But let's let's turn to this this anniversary we have today of sorts, this four-year anniversary of the trade war. You wrote in the latest Global Impact newsletter that quote the trade war used to be a trendy topic in China but now there is a sense of fatigue in discussing the issue can you tell us a bit more about that and, and what you're hearing about this
1: oh uh, one china and the us were negotiating the phase 1 trade deal the general sentiment in china is that china has made great compromises as because it is still think that the trade issue is a still a sort of the stabilizer or last stone to stabilize the, the overall uh, relations of the two of the world's two largest economy. Uh, so there are quite a lot of uh, ex- uh, high hope on this thing to, to ease the tension. So uh, from that time, it has been discussed quite a lot about what kind of compromises China has been made and whether China is able to deliver such high commitments in the phase one trade deal. But what we can see from now that the phase one trade deal has failed to stabilize the overall relations and the China and the US relation has been plunged to the lowest level in several decades. And there is no sign for, where, for any substantial improvement. And the trade issue, especially this tariff Tariff issue has been dropped from the table of or the top of the discussion agenda in Beijing because, on one hand, observers and uh, uh, manufacturing a factory on the ground has said that they've already adjust uh, get accustomed to the situation and they adjusted their production and export strategy based on the higher tariffs. So they they have been getting accustomed to it, and uh, on the other hand, China's Trade surplus against uh US has been remained resilient despite of the tariff war. Meanwhile, China is facing a very heightened and uh, uh, containment from the US in almost every aspect, uh, from technology, from military, uh, cyberspace, and even uh, human rights and ideology. So trade issue and especially the tariff issue only play a very tiny part in the overall situations. And uh, and given the current situation, when the talks in the US are very heated about whether and how much the US should remove the tariffs on China, uh, it is uh, clear, very clear in Beijing that the uh I mean Beijing has is very clear that all this was to serve U.S. domestic interest, which is to tame the inflation. Yeah, and, and it is not a game changer for the overall relations.
2: That's fascinating. And I'm curious, what are you hearing as a response to this idea that the Biden administration might lower tariffs on, on Chinese goods this week, basically as a move to try and control inflation domestically in the U.S.? What's the mood like, or what was the response you picked up from your sources about this idea of dropping the tariffs from the US on Chinese goods?
1: Basically, the general sentiment in China is that if Biden chooses to announce some tariff uh, rollbacks, it is generally a good news for both sides, consumers and the producers. However, it is clearly in in Beijing's mind that the move is to the inflation in the U.S., and uh, given there are reports from the U.S. media from time to time that Biden might be selectively in introducing some tariff ta- uh, rollbacks, the administration is considering about other containment uh, or, or measures on China, such as expand their export uh, control and economic blocks to exclude China from the the global supply chain, they think that any good side of the tariff removal will be largely overshadowed or clouded by other negative news. And uh, since the start of the tariff uh, removal uh, discussed in the US, Beijing is buying the large remains silent on this. It has repeatedly reiterated its long-standing position that the U.S. should remove all the punitive tariffs imposed on Chinese products, and they even think that a sophistic and mature talks between the two sides should be based on how to replace the Phase One trade deal and not to single out the tariff issues. But Beijing is also clear that the Biden administration is quite divided on how to handle this issue. So it just—I think that it's just to choose a, a wait-and-see attitude. But there are also expectations that uh, both sides have also conducted other discussions or negotiations on other trade and economic issues such as the how to deal with the uh, Chinese companies listed in the US.
2: It's an entirely separate topic or indeed an entirely separate front in the different wars that the US has with China, it's got the trade war, the tech war, and of course, the accounting war uh, being done with uh, uh, Chinese companies listed on Wall Street. I'm curious about, you know, one of the other reports from the political economy team in the last week or so about China's President Xi Jinping, re-emphasizing the need for China to be self-reliant in technology. Now, how much of this is do you think about the domestic concerns and how much is based on watching the Biden administration and its refusal to remove trade sanctions and tariffs on Chinese goods?
1: I think the thought about to spiff up the self-sufficiency in technology uh, has long started when uh, Biden's predecessor, Donald Trump, has launched the trade war and other economic sanctions on China, especially the Huawei saga. Yeah, the trade war has Sent a, a clear and very big warning to the China that China has to be taking great efforts to seeking some uh, breakthroughs in core technology and reduce the reliance on the on the on the Western technology and the science, which while the China's relations with the West has getting more and more hostile in recent years. Also, it's uh, during the trade war uh, in the in the Donald Trump administration. And China also reviewed its ambitious plan to become a technology superpower by the middle of the century. And in the initial days of the Biden administration, there were hopes in China that uh, uh, for a reset of the bilateral relation and even restart uh, or remove some tariffs or some sanctions on Chinese technology companies. But uh, very quickly, such hopes have been dashed, and there are more and more disappointments In the initial days of the Biden presidency, especially in its 100-day action plan, and there is nothing about that improving ties with China. And and we can see that after one and a half year, Biden administration is just uh, inheriting the the previous one's uh, containment uh, policy against China. So Beijing has been doubling down on the self-sufficiency in technology.
2: And you did pick up in the Global Impact Newsletter the fact that there's been absolutely zero trade negotiations, phone calls, Zoom calls, any kind of contact on that level between the US and China. From from your end in Beijing, do you think there is a mood to try and restart negotiations over the phase one trade agreement or indeed to strike a new trade agreement with the US?
1: The newsletter I did was last week and this week, earlier this week, the Vice Premier Liu He and uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, they held their first phone call since October last year to talk about a broad issue on economy and the trade. And that is the first of the interaction at the very senior level to talk about to have any substantial and constructive discussions on the trading trade issues between China and the US. And uh, the tariff or the trade issue is just uh, one of the topics between the two chief economic officials. And they are they have talked about also talked about the global supply chain, uh, how the two economies should coordinated in the global recession risks and even uh, the US side has said that um, they talk about the the Ukraine crisis. I think that the Ministry of China's Ministry of Commerce and uh, uh, China's uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs have said before uh, from time to time that there there are working level discussions among the two on this issue. For Beijing, I think that uh, uh, still, let's go get back to go back to the initial days of the Biden's uh, presidency. I think that at that time, the foreign ministry held a uh, sort of the uh, discussion or meeting with the U.S. business community in China, and they sent out a very clear signal that they wanted to restart. The negotiation on the Phase One deal and how to replace the Phase One deal, uh, when the US is ready, and the Chinese side is open to any suggestions and any discussions uh, to, on this issue. And they even raised a proposal that maybe the two countries can start to negotiate the bilateral investment treaty, which was dropped by the uh, dropped during the last days of the Obama administration. But that. Proposal is just a, just to get a code shouldered by the US. Said um, so, given that uh, the, ten, the heightened tensions in between the two countries on South China Sea, on Taiwan, on Xinjiang, on Hong Kong, the US has has been delayed in announcing it's a very specific China policy or China playbook. So um, theirs have been not very intensive. Senior level engagement between the two on the on the economic issue. So I think that, given the current situation, Beijing is still waiting for a very clear signal from the Biden administration. How those economic officials trying to gap their bridges on the on their treatment on the uh, on the tariff issue, and how uh, they are also waiting for signals that how the uh, White House is going to impose sanctions or. Uh, or even launch the uh, new investigation on China's, such as uh, industry subsidies, or even this um, cyber espionage thing. Uh, then it will form a better idea of the big picture from the uh, the White House, and they will have its own source of how to conduct the negotiations. And I think that maybe in um, maybe it will also be included in the talks between Wang Yi and his U.S. counterpart of Lincoln.
2: I was just thinking, Wendy, we can only look forward to hearing what comes of this meeting between Anthony Blinken and Wang Yi over the next couple of days in Bali. We'll, of course, look for the reporting from your team on SEMP.com, what comes from the G20 meeting. Wendy Wu, political economy desk editor for the SEMP. Great to have you back. Thank you very much for your time. Thank
1: you.
3: As tensions flare between China and other nations, it's important to understand how this affects the rest of the world. Our weekly Global Impact Newsletter, sent by email, will help you stay informed with expert insights. Sign up at scmp.com newsletters.
2: Ben Kastreva has been a perennial guest on this podcast over the last four years as we've tracked the development of what's now known as the US-China trade war. He's a senior counsel with Hogan Lovells based in Hong Kong, and he's former assistant general counsel at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, the USTR, where he handled U.S.-China disputes and negotiations, WTO disputes, and FTA negotiations. Ben, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: It's a uh, you know curious anniversary of four years since Trump announced this big boost in tariffs on Chinese goods the last four years you've been negotiating the terms of trade between importers and exporters from China and the U S thrust into the front line. So to speak, how's your job changed? What's the situation for you right now?
0: You know, it, It has changed in uh, in myriad ways. Uh, Certainly, the pandemic had changed it. I never expected I'd spend much of 2020 negotiating mask and PPE contracts between uh, Chinese suppliers and U.S. hospital systems and uh, nonprofits and others. Uh, That was completely unexpected. And then other things have sort of continued to pace, where uh, the expansion of export control rules, controls on goods and technology flows added sanctions. uh, Those were more expected. Uh, Then you look at kind of the situation here in Hong Kong and the national security law and the U.S. response to that. And all of that has meant that there has been a deepening of tensions here. And you know, now I look back at the beginning of the, the so-called trade war when it was just tariffs as kind of a, a simpler time. Uh, now, I think the, uh, the US-China trade and economic competition has uh, deepened and grown more complicated.
2: What was your first response to the news that the Biden administration might drop tariffs or at least lower them? Uh,
0: Not all that surprised. This has been a debate That has been going on since day one of the Biden administration. Uh, He came in skeptical of those tariffs. Uh, I think there was a hope that they could use them as leverage in further talks with China. But at the same time, because the politics in the United States on tariffs uh, and on on China in general has really shifted where there's an increasingly negative attitude towards China, it's hard to do anything that would be perceived as softening towards China even if it would help uh, decrease some of the economic pressures. so I, I I'm not surprised that they're finally getting around to doing something on them. If anything, I kind of expected it to happen earlier if nothing else uh, through the form of an expanded uh, product exclusion process that um, you know existed in the Trump administration more than in the biden administration.
2: So you're saying it's just trade war but by different means so to speak that you're saying.
0: Yeah, well the you know the Biden administration has announced its policy towards China. It has continued to label it a strategic competitor and other sort of names. Uh you know it has come out with uh, uh, lots of different laws on uh, conf, uh constricting the US China economic relationship. If you look back, you know 20 years ago when China joined the WTO, the laws and regulations in China and the United States brought the two countries together. It really incentivized trade investment uh, exchanges. Now, both countries are really, uh, their laws and regulations are pulling it apart. Uh, And it's not just the United States. China is doing it too, where it's harder to do trade with the other country. It's harder to invest in the other country. It's certainly harder to travel in China these days. Um, And all of that has meant that uh, companies are fighting an uphill battle when uh, they're still seeking to do trade between the two countries, which isn't to say it doesn't exist. I mean, it's still huge trading volumes, uh, lots of investment happening, but it's a a different world than certainly uh, 2015.
2: And just going back two years, you spoke on this podcast the day before the US election and contrasting where we are now, how has it changed trade? What are your clients telling you? What have you observed about how importers, exporters have adapted to this new tariff regime, this escalating tariff regime over the last couple of years. Has there been offshoring? Has there been various other kind of adaptations?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, we're not controlling for variables here. So we have, the tariffs that have happened, and I think for companies that were able to manage those, some left China who have large volumes of trade into the United States and were uh, you know, a, a factory that they could put somewhere else. So we did see some reshoring to South Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, Thailand, and some back into the United States, although not as much as I think the Trump administration had hoped for. At the same time, you know some companies were able to maneuver around those tariffs,, uh, you know, uh, adjusting prices, raising prices for consumers slightly, eating some of those costs, finding ways to keep their factories in place because the Chinese supply chain, was still the only place they could really have their their operations. And then along came COVID and the uh, lockdowns in China, the logistics hassles. And so for then, I think you're seeing a new wave of companies saying, well, not only do we have these tariffs, but even the efficiencies that we came to rely upon in China are uh, are lacking. And so you're seeing a new wave of investment, either in the United States or elsewhere, as companies at least see... To balance their exposure to China uh, after, I th- it really feels like the last six months was when a lot of companies got fed up, where the rest of the world opened up and China, you know, maintaining this zero COVID strategy made them less competitive when it came to these operations. And then you add on. Export control rules, sanctions, uh, limitations on uh, supply chain, forced labor—all these new rules and regulations that uh, companies have to comply with—and it just makes for a very complicated supply chain, and not the simplicity that they came to rely upon.
2: It's very interesting you speak about the last couple of months and the frustrations you're hearing from your clients, and I'm wondering—you know—with the Shanghai lockdown, you know, initially told the residents as five days went to 63. The shockwaves of that through the supply chain, the world's busiest port operating 24-7, suddenly couldn't get truck drivers. The ships, as we've seen on the on the ship tracking radar, are backed up in their hundreds, if not thousands, off the coast of Shanghai. How much is that continuing to impact these decisions businesses are making
0: Yeah, I think it was a shockwave to the reliability, uh, where, you know, for both uh, foreign manufacturers, but also Chinese companies really seeing that, you know, that they could be locked down in this way and, and that their factories could be shut off. I've I've heard anecdotally that a lot of companies still haven't ramped up, even though a lot of the lockdowns have ended, because it's expensive to ramp up production again and then stop it. And they don't quite trust that they're not going to just get locked down again. And I, I've seen in the news recently that uh, Shanghai is going through another battery of testing. And so until there's reliability, until there's consistency and faith that uh, these lockdowns are going to happen again, I think China's reputation as a reliable place to do manufacturing. But both for Chinese companies and for multinationals, is going to continue. The other point is that Consumer behavior has changed rapidly, right? We we went from everyone ordering a Peloton and uh, weights and and everything else into in our homes to uh, oh we're out of our homes we don't need uh, quite as many consumer goods from China because we're spending again on restaurants and travel but now all of a sudden you know inflationary prices on fuel, food, <laughs> uh, housing uh, has also decreased consumption and so there's a lot of different factors going on uh, but cert- some in China's control and some uh, you know related to the broader macroeconomic trends
2: we're speaking on a thursday there is there's a possibility that the biden administration might make an announcement on the lowering of some tariffs is it going to change conditions for trade between us and china a lot or do you think companies have already made their decision about what the future will be
0: uh, well, at the risk of uh, having a bad prophecy, um, what, I, what I've what i heard is that there could be a fairly minor number of consumer goods where they unilaterally simply lift the tariffs. And so people have talked about bicycles and things that uh, consumers might buy in big box stores like Walmart as just a Nod to the uh, inflationary pressures that are really affecting ordinary Americans. I mean, uh, on the other hand, those inflationary pressures are not are less about consumer goods and more about these other areas that we mentioned—you know, fuel and food and housing, healthcare, education—that have existed for a long time. And those are the things that where people are more worried about. And so you you know, you know knock off a few dollars of the price of your bicycle, that's not going to kind of change the overall budget of the ordinary American. Uh, the other thing, though, that I think the Biden administration will pursue is a new product exclusion process. And so that's where individual companies can apply to the U.S. government and have a tariff removed. This exists in the Trump administration, and they they granted about one in 10, 13 uh, percent of these applications before. Um, and, uh, you know, I worked on a, a, quite a few of those. Uh, and for companies that can navigate that process, that could mean millions and millions of dollars of tariff savings. And I think what you might see is a new process. But the granting of more of those uh, exclusion requests. So if you know, all of a sudden they're able to say, okay, well, these products aren't made in America. There's no US competitor that we're dealing with from China. There's no severe economic harm by bringing this in. It doesn't you know, help support some strategic interest in China that's related to five g or AI or surveillance or these sort of national security issues that faces China. I think you'll see more of those. That's the direction that uh, I think both uh, the Biden administration has been signaling, and the one that probably makes the most sense in the broader strategic relationship between the United States and China. Uh,
2: so it sounds like the Biden administration to continue the the war kind of motif here, moving from the kind of carpet bombing of tariffs, to more surgical strikes in terms of being able to exempt certain products, and I guess not have that appear in the headlines and not be wedged politically at home.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, the politics on China, are very difficult uh, uh, for the Biden administration. You can uh, you can imagine the the headlines in both Fox News and MSNBC. Biden administration softened stance on economic relations with China, and that'll hurt him. On the other hand, Biden administration does nothing on inflation. You know that hurts him too. And so it's a it's a it being the president of the United States is always a tough day. I. I think the past few months have been particularly difficult for this administration or any administration to navigate both the domestic and foreign uh, crises that seem to come up uh, on a near daily basis. Uh, I think that the product exclusion request, though, is quieter. He can say that he's uh, directly responding to various business needs. Uh, The Chamber of Commerce and others would support this uh, and able to say, oh, you know, you need this widget in order to increase manufacturing in the United States. We can't make that widget in the United States readily, take it from China, because that means more manufacturing overall in the United States. That's a pretty good story to tell. It might be a little too wonky for the average American, but I think it, overall, it's the right policy choice.
2: That sounds like you'd be busy going forward <laughs> uh, as this continues. Ben Kistreva. thank you very much for your time. Great to have you back on the podcast and look forward to speaking to you in the future.
0: Always my pleasure.
2: And that's all for this initial return of the China Geopolitics podcast. Don't forget you can follow all of the latest news and analysis from the G20 meeting over the next 48 hours at SEP.com. Don't forget you can follow the Political Economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. I'm at J underscore Watt. Great to be back in your podcast feed. Great to be back on the microphone. Look forward to chatting to you next week.